Welcome to episode 268 of Stageworthy. I'm your host, Phil Rickaby. Stageworthy is a podcast about people in Canadian theatre featuring conversations with actors, directors, playwrights, and more. I'm going to take a little break over the next couple of weeks, but I will be back in January with more conversations in Canadian theatre. Before we get to Stageworthy, I wanted to mention my audio drama, St. Nick and the Big Up. St. Nick and the Big Up is a holiday audio drama in six parts written and performed by me and tells the story of a part-time mall Santa who's having the worst day. Chapter 5 is available as of today, and it, and the previous four episodes, which I suggest you check out first, can be found at stnickandthebigfup.com, as well as everywhere you get podcasts. You can find Stageworthy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website with the archive of all 260 episodes at stageworthypodcast.com. If you want to drop me a line, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at PhilRickaby, and my website is philrickaby.com. If you want to support Stageworthy, consider dropping some change in my virtual tip jar. You can find a link to that in the show notes. Your support helps me continue to bring you great conversations in Canadian theatre. My guest this week is Aliyah Etienne. Aliyah is a theatre writer, actor, performer, and facilitator from Toronto. Aliyah, if you were to describe your artistic practice or describe what you do artistically, how would you describe that to someone? I describe myself as a creative. So I would start there. And I say something as broad as a creative because I just like to dip into different things. Mm -hmm. I would say that. I'm experimental. Mm-hmm. I'm always looking for new ways to be expressive mm. and also reach out. So experimental, I would say I'm always looking for new tools and ways to enhance my performance mm. as well, whether it be in costume, whether it be in the lighting that I choose, incorporating um, projection at some points. I just all around creative, dipping into experimental, sometimes Mm. quite dark. And Mm. I always aim to give an honest depiction of mental health. It's a big one. That is big. Now, where did, for you, where did performing start for you? Performing started for me quite young. I would say I always liked to have the opportunity to perform in some way. Um, they, my family talks about me going to like my first caravana and having mm. this amazing time and just dancing and enjoying myself. And I credit that just genuine love of play in that Mm. way and connection with self when you're Mm. moving you know where your body is and you feel where your body is and 
So that love of performing, even when I didn't know it was performing, was always there. I think that maybe in the eighth grade, I did a talent show <laughs> and we did a dance with me and all my friends and a lot of my teachers and um, a lot of the parents were like, hey, like you should really consider doing this. You're pretty good. And I just remember loving the experience, loving the adrenaline, loving the preparation for it and working so hard to make this go well. And then the gratification that comes out of it. Now, a lot of kids uh, do that kind of, they perform a little bit when they are younger, you know, there's mm -hmm. always like talent shows and things like that. And, and, and it's not always, it's not often, and it's not particularly common when, when kids who perform when they're younger go on to perform when they grow up. At what point did you know that being a creative was going to be your life? Hmm. I think by high school, I think in hmm. the ninth grade, I took drama and again, just a teacher was like, Hey, you know, you're taking to this, you do pretty well. Would you be interested in doing this drama program? Mm -hmm. This drama program was the Amy project. So if you are in Hamilton and you know anything of Hamilton fringe, Claire is Claire Callan is there. But at that time when I was in high school, she was doing Amy project. And I didn't get in that year. I got in the next year. And something about it felt very normal in a way that I didn't see it feel normal for others. Nothing else felt as comfortable as performance. There was no subject that interested me that much. There was no type of school club or activity that made me feel as good as the ones that gave me the opportunity to perform, whether it be in dance team, whether it be doing the school plays and writing those, I always wanted to be involved in stage. And I just knew that that in any way, shape or form, I just wanted to be able to perform and get out there. And at that point in high school, that was all I was, aiming for how many opportunities can I get? How much can I push this? I just fell in love and stuck with it. And eventually you decided uh, when you would decide when, when high school was done, you were going to go to theater school. Did you go to U of T or Sheridan first? I, yes. So I took a year off after high school and then I went to Sheridan. Uh-huh. Was there? I've got was an there, interesting school history. <laughs> oh, please! I want to. I want to hear because I, I find it interesting why people chose the school that they chose. Now, some people, um, they're like, I took the school that took me, and other people focused on a school. Was Sheridan a school that, like, what was it about Sheridan that that made you want to go there? I wanted to be a more well-rounded performer. Hmm. And their program was performance rather than acting, rather than, you know, vocals, singing, vocal training. And 
I wanted to learn those aspects and expand on that part of my craft. Mm. And I was always, say, in high school. And I also did things like Be Current. I did Amy Project. I did, I believe, Young People's Small Units with Canadian Stage during mm. summers and things like that. So I was, <laughs> I was engulfed in things enough. And I was just always treated as a straight actress. Whenever there was anything dance or vocal involved, that was kind of like third, fourth choice. And I got very self-conscious about that because mm. I didn't want to feel like a one trick pony, if yeah. if that makes sense. And so when I saw that there was performance and I saw that I could touch on everything a little bit, I decided to take that step to apply to Sheridan. And I don't regret it at all. Great choice. Mm. I, I, I always, you know, my, and my gateway drug for theater were musicals. I remember there were a few musical soundtracks in our record collection at home. And that sort of started me on the road, like realizing, oh, these songs tell a story and, and, and their characters in these songs. And that sort of led me to, to theater and then beyond. Mm. But the one thing that sort of kept me out of musical theater was I just didn't have the confidence in dance. And so that's oh. sort of like a thing, you know, you go to like this thing, it's like, I have a passable singing voice, I can act all right, but then there's a dance call and that's where everything <laughs> sort of fall apart. You know what I mean? Mm, that's the majority. <laughs> like, okay, you know what? I'm going to tell a story just to, just to put a perspective, how mm -hmm. much dance calls are a bit of a pain. And again, I was treated as a straight actress before I went to Sheridan. Sheridan, I went to take performance, musical theater, Sheridan program, whole other bag of words. Like it's, it's intense. They do amazing productions, but let's be clear. That's very different than what I, I took. And mm. I did not have any musical theater background. So a lot of the folks that I went into this performance program with were interested in going to Sheridan Musical Theater and moving on in that way. Mm. So I just had all this musical theater, music, choreography, legally blonde, the musical, just like thrown <laughs> at me in this year. I was like, there were musicals of things I never knew existed. <laughs> uh, to this day, I'm still listening to The Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> and I, I blame Sheridan. I blame those people. <laughs> but I, maybe a few months ago now, saw a dance call. Now, I do a lot of dance and dance movement. And I say that because I have not trained specifically in dance as long as I ever have acting or vocally. And... I do this dance call, very open. They're like, we just want people who move. And they do like the across the floor thing when they're like, do this move, just copy me. Mm -hmm. Hit the other side of the dance studio. And they did that choreography and they did the whole like contemporary dancer, like flip in the air thing and come down. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, I wanna go home. 
I don't want a bagel. <laughs> Just cut me right now. I'm so done. Yeah. <laughs> and I do the choreography. They they get to me and I try to do this across the floor thingy. And I get to this this jump and, and leak leap of faith, as I'm going to call it now. And I came down on the toe. No. And I said, <laughs> you know, and I just, in a way, I love being in those situations. Because <laughs> as much as I'm a creative and I'm always about experimenting and experimenting, I was in this space where I saw some of the most beautiful pieces of movement. And I'm so happy mm. I got to witness it. But also knowing where I'm at with that and how my body mm. specifically moves. I'm glad that I got to try the jump flippy thing, but clearly I had not learned how to come down. And so, <laughs> and so that was a thing. So um, I like to be experimental because of what you mentioned around. There was this one piece that I was unsure of that somewhat is discouraging to get into anything else. And when I allow myself to experiment, I prevent myself from getting in the way of learning mm. because I was told also, I was told I wasn't a very good dancer and dance movement is the thing that I love doing. And it's such an integral piece of what I'm writing right now. Nice. But in school they were like, yeah, this is, that was not at all my highest grade. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> we'll we'll I, go there. At what age did like, was that something they told you at Sheridan or had you been told before uh, college that you were quote unquote not a good dancer. Um, I always love to dance, but even to this day, I don't use a lot of choreography. That choreography stuff is tough. It doesn't <laughs> sit. It doesn't sit in my body yeah. the way that my natural reaction to movement sits in my body. Mm. So I always knew I was not strong in that way. I would do the dance team and stuff, and that was always hard for me. Um, mm. And so going to Sheridan, and again, these kids are aiming for musical theater. Yeah. Some of the kids I went to school with are eating it out there, and I'm so happy for them because that was their goal. And they were just so good mm. that I feel like I just – dulled in comparison it wasn't like i was the worst thing in the world and there was no hope for me but if you're dancing alongside someone who's dancing since they like stepped out of the womb themselves what am yeah. i supposed to do yeah. um so and in comparison especially to my acting which i had worked on for years beforehand and done so much training on uh vocally whether it be diction whether it be music i was always very trying to be warm and working on that and dance was mm. something unfortunately that is just tougher to touch on yeah and so it wasn't something that any of my teachers were like you should really push the dance piece in your audition they were like you know what you you have made great progress and I think <laughs> you respond to training so well. <laughs> and it's <laughs> you in my... <laughs> so I will put out there, no one came up to me and was like, you suck. That's not <laughs> what happened. But in, in the effort they put into caring 
and that extra effort and helping me readjust, I picked up on the fact that maybe I was not at the bar <laughs> that folks were. Because I went to school, there were ballerinas in there, yeah. there were point shoes in there, people were tapping all over the place, and I I went to parties. So. <laughs> <laughs> You're describing the things that they're saying, and part of me is like dying inside because it's like, it's the words sound positive, but they're kind of being like, you know what, dance is not your thing, is what those phrases say to me. It's just like, maybe yeah. you're strong, you could sing, you can act, maybe we should just make you stand there. <laughs> Listen, Adele just stands there, she's doing all right. Okay? That's true. No I one appreciate gives the fact beyond choreography, and she so is true. doing okay. That's so true. And, you know, I appreciate the, the, cause there's, you know, there's a bunch of musicals that have come out where there are a number of, of lead characters that don't dance. They sort of like maybe do a couple of steps, but they don't do major choreography. And I can get behind that. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And on the subject of dance, we're talking about dance and I'm saying feedback that I got. But if anyone has seen a show or even gone on my Instagram in the past few years, I do maturity dance and movement. Mm. And I will make the distinction between dance and movement because, mm. say, for example, you can wave. Waving is a movement, but it's not dance. No, yeah. So dance movement is what I do. And I say that solely because I have so much respect for folks who have fully trained in dance and have those years of experience and know how to come down from the beautiful contemporary leap thing. And yeah. I know that that is not where I am in that piece of my creativity. That being said, mm. I love that form of expression. I love to move. Mm. I am a Afro-Caribbean woman. My family is mm. from Trinidad, I'm first generation. So the idea of moving hips and whining and that reaction to music it's just a piece of my person. And so the idea of being told not to dance or that you're mm. not as good at dancing because you couldn't remember steps in a specific way, I had to work through and break out of because mm. there's dance, there's movement, there's reaction. And I didn't want to lock myself in my body. Right. Mm, even yeah. even the folks who do just stand and sing like the Celines and the Adele's, they still <laughs> move. They still yes. you still get those moments of power in them. And so that's something that I had to figure out of my own accord. And the result of that is there are times where I don't speak at all. I've done performances with voiceover and music mm, and mm. that's amazing. But I do reflect on you know, the lack of a better word, critiques that I received in school. Yeah, <laughs> I do. I think that in terms of, of, of performances that have, where the actor isn't necessarily speaking, there's a certain power in silence that I think that mm. there were, especially in theater, there's not a lot of comfort with silence. And... Mm -hmm. Because I think that we feel like if we're not talking, nothing is happening. But a silence can be so powerful. And a silent actor where there's just music or there's voiceover is is a very 
there's a freeing aspect to it. Like how, and but also a challenge, like how do you tell the story with your body and your face Mm. that complements the music, you know? I will, I'll put it out there like this. You know, when people get mad and they throw something, Mm. you get so frustrated and you're pent up and you see whatever glass or vase or you're holding whatever plate and it's just like, what cow? <laughs> and it just makes the big loud noise and there's the crash and there's every little pieces on the floor. When I have an emotion that I'm trying to portray, I'm moving in that moment where you smash that dish, where you sweep everything mm. off the counter. That mm. little piece of adrenaline and that idea of emotion. Mm. One motion that you can do is going to satisfy this, is going to release you. That is how I feel when I do those performances specifically, or even those pieces that are, you know, voiceover, spoken word, sometimes mm. just a beat and I'll use projection. I am operating in that mode of, I am so angry, I'm going to throw something. Mm. I am so angry. How hard am I going to lift this leg? When I put my foot down, how much power am I putting in that? And what am I trying to convey in my body? It's a, it's an interesting thing as someone who also writes spoken word and does mm. prose. I find it just, ah, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's a release. <laughs> yes. It's a, di- it's a different type of release physically. And I think especially when I am speaking up on anxiety, when you have a panic attack, yeah, it's mental health, but it's physical. Mm. When you have anxiety aches, when you're nervous, yeah, it's in your mind, it's mental health, but you're feeling it physically. And so the connection through all of that dance movement really helps get Mm. to that place for me. Mm. Can I ask you about your solo show a yellow zoned and yes. was that was that your first solo show was that and what drove you to perform solo what was the what made you want to per, to create and perform a solo show um there was a point when i started doing theater i think in my teens mid high school and i saw a debut young show and this mm. is in the midst of me being in Be Current. Um, at the time, it, there was a summer program that went on for uh, Black youth and youth of color. It's kind of like a theater intensive. And we go mm. see the show and the places she was able to go. Mm. The people she was able to convey and like she's connecting and there's conversation, but there's one body that blew me away and I thought to myself one day I'm gonna have my own show (laughs) and I (laughs) pushed and I pushed and I pushed oh my goodness you don't want to see the amount of grants that I wrote that got rejected because like I clearly didn't know what I was talking about or what I was doing but I wanted my own show and so after um I finished Sheridan I'd always been writing I'm always writing pieces, writing down one or two lines that I expand on later on. 
And once I moved out, I was like, this is going to be a show. I want the show and I'm going to work on mm. it. And again, a lot of rejection because I was, I have no background, really. Like some people knew who I was, but I, I didn't know enough folks. It's like, why would we give you a couple grand? You don't even know how yeah. to make a budget. <laughs> and I just kept talking to people, kept asking questions, kept showing up to all the random shows, seeing a lot of theater. And I think Fringe, I got maybe the second or third year of um, a specific grant that they have for peoples of color when mm. they apply. And I saw it. And Fringe is a lottery. I did the Toronto mm -hmm. Fringe. When I, I assumed no one would care. And I just threw my name out there. And I said, okay. And I left it alone. I actually went through a very hard time in the midst of applying versus finding out. Mm. You know, leaving home, I had gotten my initial diagnosis mm. and all of these different things. And so in this whirlwind of me trying to, you know, grab the pieces of my life back together, I get all of these congratulations on my phone. And there we go, I get into fringe. And so that is why I have yellow zone. And yellow zone in context was that time. Mm. I wrote within that time and I performed yellow zone in a different couple, at a different um, space. Mm. when I was there versus say for example if I were to do it in three months mm. and it's even mm. hard to sometimes watch Yellow Zone because I have it on DVD mm. and yeah how did I end up with the solo show I just really wanted a show <laughs> and then I applied and I just, I just wanted it so bad and I just pushed it so bad. And yeah, I always do like to bring up when folks ask specifically about Yellow Zone and how that happened, that I didn't know how a show was going to go on, but it's all I thought about. Mm. It just, I, I just, I needed it so badly. And so to get the diagnosis and to have this terrible time in, in a few months, and then to get it, mm. it just said, it said something to me about where I need it to be. So I always put mm. that out there when folks talk about, or ask, sorry, about Yellow Zone, that it was just extremely important in so many different ways for me. And I think the decision to do that solo show was about me wanting to grow as an artist and wanting to be able to carry something mm. on my own. It's very, it's very interesting. Yellow Zone especially now that I'm writing another show. Anytime I hear the name, I'm going in a, going in a whole bunch of different directions. It's, it's interesting mm. to reflect on. Mm. Um, what, what state uh, was the writing of Yellow Zone when you applied? Was it done or and did it change after once you got in? What was, what was that? What was the state of it? 
the state of it when I implied was an idea. I <laughs> wanted to show what it was like to live as a young first generation black woman dealing with anxiety. I just wanted in some way to show that. I was writing for my own voice. So it didn't at that point didn't make sense to add in other bodies to this mm. to the stage. I it just felt like such a personal process. It's interesting. I don't think anyone's ever asked me this before. And it's causing me a, like a beautiful spinning notion in the mind. But mm. I it was like a diary. Mm. It was me trying to introduce myself to specifically Toronto theater community as a as an adult. Mm. And that was on my mind when I was applying. Mm. There were pieces and there were chunks, but I actually wrote Yellow Zone on foot. I don't necessarily sit down and write stuff. Mm. I walk around, I pace. Sometimes I write one word down or a line down and I, re I revisit them. So I feel like for the most part, it was idea. It was a concept. But I was so sure mm. that with the resources I was giving with the fringe and being able to have space to move in and just write in, sit by myself for two hours and figure out what was coming to me. Mm. Yeah, it just allowed a completely different type of process. Did... Uh... Now you've you've spoken about about um you know have talking about your your anxiety in that show and you know you're you since then you're you have a mental health mandate and you're working as a as a facilitator with youth and treatment you focusing on 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 the on the mental health aspect did that at any point when you were starting to think about creating Yellow Zone did that were you reluctant or did you feel like it was important to put out the mental health, like the idea of mental health and the, and, 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 and the, the, the anxiety and everything else around it. Did, did you feel like it was important to expose that? Yes, it is a huge one. It is one of the main reasons I lead the way I do with the mental mm. health mandate. Me, mm. as I've mentioned, being an Afro-Caribbean woman, a black woman, a first generation Canadian woman dealing with mental health is not normalized mm. at all. It's still not even really spoken about. And I say that in the same breath that I've seen a lot of specifically Black women suffer with it. And in a way, doing the work that I have, coming across other youth that I have, working with kids who some of them have the most loving parents and they're dealing with disorders and their parents are just trying because they love their children. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's not the case. And these children have been through sadly horrid things and I'm just trying to soothe. And 
a connection that I consistently made mm. was what happens to us as children? What is looked at, not looked at, neglected, affects us as adults. Because I deal with both. Mm. I deal with, you know, grown women in their 20s. And I also deal with, you know, senior kindergartners. So I'm dealing with the whole spectrum here and you see the connection. And so I feel like I don't think there's ever going to be a point where I don't lead with mm. mental health. I will say, though, on the subject of that, that I did not expect the reaction initially with Yellow Zoned. Mm. I performed Yellow Zoned one time at the staircase in Hamilton and someone had a really strong reaction. And this man was crying. Mm. And I had to really check in with self around how I was making people feel with the show. Mm. I'm aware of my own triggers and I somewhat moved past a lot of these things because I've been performing the show. I wrote the show in that time. And so I've, I've able, been able to digest it. Mm. But say, for example there is a panic attack depicted in the show at some point. Mm. And after the Fringe Festival, when people, you know, wait outside and want to have those conversations with you, I started to realize that it's like, I need to have resources. Yeah. I need someone to talk to. People are doing self-diagnosis in my show. Mm. That's, it was baffling for me, but I also wasn't surprised, but I also felt like I needed to hold space in a very particular way. Um, I'm actually in the process of writing another piece right now called Allow for Release, the Zyde Complex. And it almost acts like a part two to Yellow Zone. Mm. And it's lovely to be able to talk about Yellow Zone in the midst of working on that because I'll also be doing um I'll be doing frostbites. Yay. Mm. In oh, yeah, you just, so didn't you just find out see. about that? I just found out about that. Yes. Congratulations. And thank you. And I'm happy that my home staircase, my second mm. home gets to be saved. And oh, yes. Yes. It was, I actually teared up when I thought they were going to be there. Cause I, mm. I have such a connection to that space and I love that space. Mm. And um, yeah, I had to be aware. I'm definitely more aware of what's in this piece. I know that there's tougher content. Mm. And it's also interesting in reflection to see personally where I was in Yellow Zoned. There's no movement in Yellow Zoned. Mm. I thought about that as I was speaking to you about not being told that I, I wasn't great at it. That in the first show that I did, I did not do dance movement. There's not original music. Mm. So there is a growth there. But I also feel like with Yellow Zoned, it didn't need that. It mm. was this woman standing there and letting you know what her day-to-day -day life felt like mm. and that at the end of the day was the goal and people do still ask me about the piece or hey did you do yellow zone and it's and it's awesome to see again as a person who represents what I represent walks in the body that I do mm. to let it be known that these things happen to us 
to humanize us, whether it be as women, as black people, mm. as a black woman, as a black woman with an Afro and deeper skin. I found it very interesting. Say, for example, this cis white man in his, you know, mid maybe fifties who cried. Mm. I didn't expect that. I'm like, where did that connection come from? How did you get this emotionally attached to a character that in a lot of respects is so opposite to you? Mm. And so there is a rawness to the way that Yellow Zone is done that is lovely to think about in reflection, for mm. sure. Do you feel like it's important that what, I mean, we still have, and even though, even now, after, you know, people talk about it more, there's, there's, there's more resources, we think about it more, but there is still a mental health stigma. Mm-hmm. And, um, the importance of being open and talking about mental health to sort of like, make it you know acceptable like i'm not broken i have you know i have chemical imbalance you know that sort of thing like mm-hmm. this is where it comes from it's not you know the i think that because of the stigma and because of the history of of abuse and shutting it away so that we don't see it anymore there that 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 this uh, that our society has a, a habit of criminalizing mental health in some way and that it's important to to put it out there to talk about it, not just for the people who 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 live with it, but for the people who love them and for the people who don't even know them, just to normalize. Mm-hmm. I it's interesting, and when we come to stigma, there are so many. Mm. There's so many layers to that. There's so Mm -hmm. many intersections, right? Mm -hmm. And I find it very interesting to speak to Black men about mental health Mm. and how that is looked at. In my specific community, it's not very spoken about. In my family, it wasn't very widely spoken about. Mm. And Yellow Zoned was a very interesting time because of that as well because my Mm. family did come see the show and we're like what what is this and i just hope the more that we speak that one day it will be normalized because Mm. it's also not normalized for at least me as an individual i Mm. can say that being bipolar is not normalized to me yet Mm. it's like it's a piece of me and i deal with it and sometimes i feel obligated say in a work situation to tell people because Mm. yeah i appear like everything's okay and then if something's not okay and i have a panic attack everyone's horrified no one assumed that i was going to be in this position or i felt this way or anything like that And so, in a way, I hope that it's soothing 
for mm. folks to hear that, like, no, 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 this manifests in other people. You are not by yourself in the feeling of confusion around your own disability. Mm. I, and I, and I hope that it helps folks in that way. And almost, I, I wish maybe I would have seen that more. Mm-hmm. Being, because I will say, <laughs> personal tidbit, I was actually misdiagnosed during Yellow Zone. So I was misdiagnosed mm-hmm. with an anxiety disorder. And oh. then in the past, yeah. And now the second piece is going into dealing with figuring out what exactly is happening. Because mm-hmm. it got to a point where Yes, I have anxiety, but something else is going on and this doesn't feel right. Mm. And the reason why I want to go into that and the reason why I call it almost a part two to Yellow Zone is because in Yellow Zone, the writing comes from a place of, I am going to accept this and I'm going to deal with it. Mm. I'm just going to work with this okay, I have it, I'm going to go get the help. Mm. And with allow for release that's going to be happening in Frostbite, it's it's still in question. Mm. It's somewhat chaotic piece of mind where this character, now, she, she doesn't know what's going on. And mm. I'm almost excited to show folks that mental health is something you work through. I am never going to not be bipolar. They're not going to find the one nerve that, you know, causes that flip in the middle of the day and snip (laughs) it out. And I'm just going to be like, cool, chillalia forever, right? Yeah. That's, That's not how it works. But I am excited to show people that for some reason my life still works. I still kind of function. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm still out here in the world. And it's 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 interesting when we do talk around about stigma around mental health because it's assumed that you wouldn't be able to do any of those things. Mm. That, you know, well, how come you're able to get dressed? How come you're able to hold a job? How come you're able to be in a relationship? And those assumptions... And those are questions that I've actually gotten, right? Mm. These assumptions tell me that I still need to keep speaking about it. And then other mm. folks who are not me, who experience, you know, the body aches and the babbles and all of the other things that come along with mental health sometimes, they speak from their perspective as well because it mm. manifests so differently in every individual. And so it's not... It's not almost as easy to give empathy to because you don't know what's going on. Mm. You can try, right? You could want to. And I'm sure for the majority, if someone came to you and said, I feel this way, you would want to help them. Yeah. But mental health is so individual and manifests itself so specifically because it is mental. It is in that individual. Mm. that if you don't know a person well, there's no way 
Yeah. Sometimes. I'm a high functioning person. I remember I had a show at the end of a residency and I was horrified. For the entire week, I had hives. I cried once or twice a day. I never stopped tweaking my costume. I was hyperventilating the whole ride to the place. And they have this clip of me in in the event. I'm cool as a cum cucumber. I've got my little glass. Mm. I'm giggling. Hair looks great. I'm like, good for you. I wish I felt that way on the inside. <laughs> yeah. That's that's what having a disorder is. Mm. If I were to send you that video right now, you would see it. You'd be like, where were you bothered? The the performance went well. You're networking. Your your mentors here, and I I'm like, where did my hives go? Where where were my tears? Mm. I couldn't eat. I was so nervous. And so I thought to myself, you know, that's why it's kind of hard to get folks to even believe mm. that I have mental health disorder, that mm. I mm. deal with those issues on a regular basis, because there is a stigma and you teach yourself how to hide. Mm. You teach yourself how to cope. I remember I worked at a hair salon and I would have panic attacks a couple times a day. And I would just say I was going to the bathroom and then I'd mm. have a panic attack and then I'd clean myself up and then I'd go upstairs and I'd wash out somebody's hair. Mm. That's, that's what it is. Yeah. And in a way it's like when I did say something, I got fired. So <laughs> what, yeah. what does that, what does that <laughs> tell me? Right. What, yeah. what does that put me in the position in when, I couldn't breathe on a bathroom floor in a random salon. And I was going to take that because I had to pay my rent. Yeah. And so I faked it. And mm -hmm. then when I cracked, I cracked. I, you know, my brain did the whole, please break down. I'm going to bed thing. And I couldn't do much. And after that, I got into the fringe. So, mm. yeah. So I... I connect those times and mm. I hope that I prevent more of those times. Mm. I hope that the person that comes to the show, that listens to your podcast, <laughs> that bumps into me on the street and after a show and wants to talk to me about it, understands that when you're high functioning, High functioning is actually a decent amount of people with a disorder. Mm. I'm not a doctor. There's not a statistic. Mm -hmm. And I know that as someone who bumps into on a regular basis, other people who have bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, anxiety, uh, generalized BPD, like all of these things. And we're mm. just functioning. Mm. Nobody knows, you know, we don't, we don't have the Harry Potter scar on our forehead. It tells you bipolar, <laughs> no borderline personality disorder. Like no one, yeah. we don't have that. And we have taught ourselves how to function properly in this world. And the result of that is that you don't get a lot of help because when you are falling apart, no one believes you because you've been functioning.
Yeah. I think also because, you know, there's, there's, I, I've known uh, so many people who they were hiding it from, you know, themselves, but also all of the people around them. And that became, I think, such a habit that, you know, it was hard to ask for help when they needed it. They couldn't ask for help when they were just falling apart a little bit, but when they really fell apart, like they felt really alone. Yes. Yes, yes. I, I think the feeling of loneliness mm. causes loss more than anything else. Mm -hmm. Spinning thoughts are some of the cruelest things you can have. Period. Mm. Mm. There, I remember times of having spinning thoughts and just, I, I can't even explain just the frustration and the over it's overwhelming because the spinning thoughts are never like of cupcakes <laughs> and <laughs> you know dolphins and fun cartoons you watched when you were younger it's the smallest things that you've done wrong embarrassing moments that time you hurt your boyfriend's feelings mm -hmm. whatever the case may be and it's all there all the time and if you really dealt with that on a regular basis it's overwhelming yeah but there mm. when you have a disorder that's what your mind does mm. like sometimes where i get someone burnt out and i feel like i haven't done that much why am i burnt out i have to go and look up my mental health disorder and remind myself that i have spinning thoughts that actually take up a lot of my energy Mm -hmm. And so, no, I need a nap in the middle of the day that other people don't. And it's not because I'm lazy and it's not because I'm, I'm entitled. It's because I actually need it so that I can function to mm -hmm. the level of someone else. Mm -hmm. It's, it's tough with work. It's really tough with work. And I think that's yeah. one thing in all the conversations that we have around mental health you know i work in community art primarily sketch arts and oh sorry and i i'm so thankful that now i can say i'm having a low day mm. i'm somewhat burnt out when i'm in a meeting i can say i need to stand for five minutes and maybe walk around the block and come back because working in the typical customer service retail jobs broke me mm. they it broke me yeah there is no time to really settle self the rigid hours are very hard. And then if you call in, then you're going to lose your hours, but then yeah. you need money. So now you have anxiety about it. You you don't have any leeway, especially yeah. if you're a part-time uh, employee. So there were so many things that I will say, if there's anything I really would push and hope for change mm -hmm. is in the field of work and opportunity and because I was blatantly told I was unemployable. Mm. I remember mm. 
going into work with a hospital ban uh, by accident. Mm. And, you know, they gave me this, they're like, take this paper to your employer, the doctors will let them know. And I said, you know, I'm really sick and I'm not okay. And that lovely, lovely man told me that I was unreliable and unemployable. Mm. And on top of this disorder, I was told that I was useless. And I, I wish I could forget that feeling. Mm. And I hope that no one ever has to feel it. I pushed so hard. I dealt with the panics. I was broke regardless that I had the job. I was reading what I read now, knowing what I know now and having the experiences, I can now say how badly off I was. Mm. And that put the icing on the cake because I was working so hard to just present something, to mm. hold something together for myself. And I clearly wasn't able to. Mm. And... I've heard other folks speak about being in a similar situation and when we speak about mental health and we assume that it's only the folks on the street, yeah, that it's only the people who don't work or can't take care of themselves. What I like to remind people is that people get there. They don't start there. No one, you know, wakes up and goes, you know what? That's the life I want. I'm going to leave everything over here. Mm. I found out I have a disorder. And so I'm going to choose to be homeless, to be on the street, to abuse what I'm abusing mm. for fun because it was cute. Things snowball. When I was diagnosed and I couldn't breathe for half my day and I would cry uncontrollably for no reason and I was pushing to go to work and pretend to be somewhat normal and then to have the job taken away. Mm. And on top of that, be told it was because I wasn't acting normal enough. Yeah. I was not at all in a position to take care of me. And I think about if uh, my family didn't live in the country, I mm. think about if I didn't have the amazing best friend and roommate that I did that would just feed me Tostitos and cheese and make sure I had something in my stomach. Mm. If, you know, I didn't have the brother that I did to look forward to seeing, where would I be? It would be very different. Mm. And so to hold that empathy and to think about the process, we go, oh, the person's on drugs and look how sick they are. And we all really want to roll up our car windows really mm. fast. Mm. And that is the assumption that when someone says mental health, when they have yeah. a disorder, when they say they're not well, and what I say to those people especially when I'm face to face with people and they can see me, they can mm. see me dressed and they can see that they assume I'm okay. I say there is not much between me and the person mm. that you judge on the street. Mm. You think there is, 
I know there's not. Mm. Because there was a point where I had no job and I actually couldn't function or concentrate enough to apply for a lot of things mm. for money or bursaries or anything like that literally was not well enough to read the papers because my mind was so fuzzy because I was having so much anxiety. Mm. If I didn't have the support I had, there would be no difference between me and the people you see on the street. Mm. I hold that. Yeah. And as tough as it may be for folks to hear, it's extremely necessary around stigma, around working through stigma, around understanding, empathy. All of those things come into play. Mm. And so that's one thing that I point out to folks as someone who's high functioning, as someone who could hide it, that these things develop. When you see your friend going through something, if it's that coworker, giving that piece of empathy and care, I can say for a fact that I did have those few coworkers that helped me push through. Because I mm. would say, this person's going to be there. I'll stick with them. Mm. I'll be okay. Those small things probably allowed me to keep that job for the extra month. Yeah. Mm. And, and you know, it's, it's interesting in reflection. In writing Yellow Zone, especially at that time, at one point I was even like couch surfing a little bit. And like having meetings about about yellow zone. And I'm just hoping that the story of yellow zone and the experience of seeing it for those who have seen it sticks with mm -hmm. allows for more empathy and understanding. And also room for growth within self mm, and yeah. not have that judgment. If you do feel like something's up yeah. to not judge self, to not call yourself weak, to not say I have work, so I'm not allowed to go to the doctor to make sure that you and your mental health are a priority as mm. is extremely, extremely important to me, an extremely important thing for me to push. And I just hope that, people get that takeaway. As we draw to the end of our hour talking together, and one of the things that I've been mm -hmm. asking everybody since March is to talk about mm -hmm. what is giving them joy in their day. Uh, Cause I think we all need a little bit of joy to help us get through the day. So what's been giving you joy in the last few months to, to get you up and keep you going? Um, I would say that I've been doing a lot of art, a lot of mm. DIY art, uh, visual creative things. Cause I do a, uh, DIY art workshop called chill and do art. Mm -hmm. So I've just been doing a lot of art, a lot of color. I, oh, what brings me joy? I've been experimenting with different mediums. Mm. Sometimes I'm using crayons. I'm using pencil crayons. Um, I'm using charcoals. Like let's, let's play with that. I'm, and on another note, to be honest, like pastries are really doing it for me right now. Ooh. Cookies, 
cupcakes, all of that great stuff. And just having the extra time to explore stuff because mm. I'm home. I mm. think up a random question and then I Google it and then I fall down a Google hole and that <laughs> brings me joy. <laughs> nice. Thank you so much. This has been a wonderful conversation. And thank you. I really appreciate you having me and hopefully in the future, I will be able to like see your face and things. This has been a Homebody Productions production.